Thank you so much for joining us today for our LifePoint podcast. At LifePoint, we believe everyone's welcome, nobody's perfect, and with God, anything's possible. Hope you enjoy. Well, come on, LifePoint Church. How are we doing? It's so good to see all of you in the house today. To those who are in the lobby, in the Fresca tent, or online worshiping with us, thank you for being here today. My name is Andrew Garcia, or Johnny Bravo, or Jimmy Neutron. Now that I've said it, you can't unsee it, but such is life. Uh, I'm one of the teaching pastors here at LifePoint, and I'm excited to get into God's Word with you today. But before we do that, I've got something that I want to share with you guys. Next week, we've got a big deal happening. Look at your neighbor and say, it's a big deal. In the chat, type, it's a big deal. Here's the deal. See how many times I did that? Come on. We've got something happening that you do not want to miss. Pastor Danny is going to be here sharing something, a big announcement with us. So if you call LifePoint home, you want to be here. Pastor Danny is over right now uh, at Acacia Church in Louisiana uh, preaching. Uh, He's an overseer there at one of the churches, and um, he gets to preach there every uh, once, at least one time every year. So send a prayer for him today as he's doing that. But I'm telling you, come back next week to hear the heart and what's on the horizon for LifePoint Church. We got some good things happening, and you do not want to miss out. And next week, we're going to have a new series kicking off called We Are the Church. Uh, But today, I get to preach what God has had on my heart and my mind. And I'm going to be honest with you, it's, it's a little messy, but I do think that God can still get the message across. And so uh, I just want to be able to dive right in today. Um, I'm 33 years old. I know I look super, super young and beautiful because I am. Uh, But I'm the firstborn of three. Any firstborns in the house? Come on, firstborns unite. That's what I'm talking about. Firstborns are the best. The rest of you, well, that's okay. Um, But my mom gave birth, uh, hello to me, yeah, of course. And like two days later, like I was in church, at least it's how the story goes. You know, my mom is kind of made, you know, she's like one of those, she should have been like on the Oregon Trail churning butter. She's got like, she's one of those women, physical, you know, stoutness and personal holiness. I'm not saying she's large, so that's not what I mean when I say that. (laughs) Never say that about your mom, by the way. But God's house has been my home for as long as I can remember. And over 33 years, I've, I've seen God answer prayers I've heard God vo- God's voice within my heart and mind. I've experienced God's protection. But I've also heard God's deafening silence. God has walked with me through many dark nights within my soul. And he's been with me in every mountaintop moment. You see, I've, I've embraced faith. I've wrestled with hope. And time and time again, I've given into doubt. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Faith, hope, doubt. These are the milestones of every personal pilgrimage when it comes to following Jesus. And of all of the opinions, of all the philosophies that have been said, that have been written, that have been recorded across history, the one thing that I think many people can agree on, the only thing that I think people can agree on would be this statement. Whatever else men have believed, they have all believed that there is something the matter with mankind. Without a doubt, the one thing that we can all agree on is we're all a little bit jacked up. There's something the wrong with us. It's the only thing we seem to know from, for sure. The human in me and humanity, as far as our eyes can see, something seems to be broken. 
And for anyone who's troubled by the complexities of our society, anyone disturbed by the injustices that are all around us, anyone striving to become the best version of themselves but always seem to be falling short, the gap between the real and the ideal, between progress and perfection, what we struggle with sits a word that I think many of us view as primitive. It's this word known as sin. And this is really the beauty of the Bible because What we find in Genesis, the book of beginnings, is poetry written to us to tell us a story. One that we recognize as true because we can see and sense it within ourselves. Giving us language for what we all feel but don't quite know how to put into words. And what we find in Genesis is that at the beginning of all things, God was the center of all things. Before the fruit was taken and tasted. And from that moment on, Every human being has found their own unique way of putting himself, herself at the center of the universe and demanding that everyone else work with them, work around them and cooperate. Sin has been woven into the fabric of our world. And I might even suggest that our personal failures are less about the morals that we have and more about who occupies the center of our heart because whoever, whatever holds our heart is taking us somewhere. Like, have you noticed that while all of our human missions are right, our methods so often are destructive? That our good intentions, powered by human resources, end up bringing more pain than they do healing. We, humanity, aren't resourced to fix the the problem, the problems (laughs) that we have created. And sin is our attempt to meet the deep needs of our life by our own resources. And how often do we still feel and find that something is missing? You see, the problem the Bible tells us is that sin is the separation between us and God, and Jesus has been sent to address this issue. And on our search for enough, trying to discover the elusive more that that we all know seems to be there but is always just out of reach, the more that we've been made for but we can never seem to meet, we're always searching, always. I I would even go as far to say that we're we're hurt and hungry for not just more uh, enough but more than enough to be satisfied and to feel secure and whole. And this hole that we all seem to have and combat is rooted so deep within us that this isn't even just like a religious belief. Richard Dawkins, an evolutionary biologist and arguably the world's most famous atheist, in his book titled The Selfish Gene, sets up the the, the premise that human selfishness is the problem and it goes beyond the level of our will and motives. And what he's trying to say is that selfishness is much deeper and darker than we think. You see, Dawkins believes that at the core of our DNA, the genes that survive are those with the greatest level of self-interest, that the selfish gene always wins, that there's no real surface, no real service, no real kindness, no real love, that everything anyone does is always for self-protection, self-interest, self-promotion. There's always some hidden agenda within And you don't have to be religious to sense a shallowness and a hopelessness in this belief, and yet at the same time know to some degree it seems to be very, very true about me and the world around us, doesn't it? We all know that human selfishness is pervasive, like it's prevalent in the world around us, within our world, within us. And yet even armed with that knowledge, 
even have walking through some human experience, it's weird how we still try to convince ourselves that with good intentions, by pulling together human resources, we can somehow mend the brokenness around us, even while we neglect the spiritual poverty within us. You see, in in our modern Western understanding, we know we're flawed, and yet we've bought into this idea that just addressing some cosmetic exterior issues is enough to fix the problem. As if our issue is just a little fender bender of character and a little maintenance of the soul. That's not the case. We've been totaled from the inside out. And yet humanity attempts to stitch stitch together this full and satisfying complete life by our own limited resources, seeking deep meaning, lasting peace, and soul-level fulfillment. And yet we attempt to do it time and time again apart from the divine. This is the lie that we live. This is the lie that has been lived across history. Like, look at Romans 125 with me. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. And maybe you're curious what this has to do with faith, hope, and doubt. You see, just because you believe in Jesus doesn't mean that you follow Jesus. Our claims, our values, our vision are confirmed when our convictions are tested. You see, when we face challenges or adversities that put our beliefs and principles to the test, it becomes an opportunity to reaffirm the authenticity and strength of our convictions. And the way that we respond during trials and difficulties often reflects and reveals the depths of our commitment to the vision and values that we proclaim. Challenges serve as a proving ground for our beliefs, demonstrating whether our principles hold firm in the face of adversity. And our responses and actions during testing solidify, give credibility to the claims that we make and the commitments that we profess to believe in. And testing, testing is a huge part of faith. The part of faith that most often rattles our hope and creates ripples of doubt within our heart, mind, and soul. And our sin makes itself known in our attempt for self-sufficiency. And this this doesn't just happen for unbelievers, but even in the lives of believers. When we try to take back control because things aren't working out like we thought, hoped, and believed. And I know that you struggle with this because I struggle with this. And this isn't just my life. I'm the professional, (laughs) right? I think that it's safe to say we don't just need a solution to life. We need to be saved from life. Which means where we place our faith matters. Like, think about this. I'm going to try to make this as clear as possible. Matthew, can you come up here real quick, sir? Now, this is a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. What is this? Thank you. You never know nowadays. And what is this? Now, I got a question for you. If you're struggling to swim, which one of these do you want me to throw your way to hold on to? Come on, work with me here. What's incredible is there is no amount of faith, wishful thinking, 
or manifestation that is going to allow this rock to save you, is there? This is big. You see, it's not just about how much faith you have. It's also about what you put your faith in. The object of your faith matters just as much as the faith that you have. If you're drowning and I give you the rock, you're going to sink like a rock. Thank you. You see, this is, this is a big deal for us because this is intellectually simple and unfortunately intellectually and practically absent in the lives of so many believers because it's not our faith that saves us, it's the object of our faith. And if we grab onto the wrong thing, we will end up sinking towards death. The object of our faith matters. The object of our faith matters. And the problem is that even believers who claim Jesus haven't made Jesus the object of their faith. In the Bible, we can find instances where individuals believed in Jesus but didn't make him the sole object of their faith. And there's one prime example that I think stands out above the rest, and it's about the, the account of the rich young ruler that's found in the Gospels in the record of Mark. And we're going to be looking at chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. Now, now read this with me. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus immediately speaks back. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Now, now catch this. The first thing that you want to note here is how has the man come to Jesus? He ran to him. He's fallen at his feet. There's a sense of urgency, of passion. I would even argue maybe desperation, hunger. And immediately we find Jesus throwing him off course. It's like he's trying to, he, he just douses him with cold water. Like, hold on, son. I know that you see me, but I have actually come. My life is to point back to God, the Father, the only one who is good. And Jesus continues, you know the commandments. You shall not murder you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, I have kept all these things since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him with love. There's one thing that you lack. Go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And it's at this that the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, before we assume what we think the story means, a, a wealthy young man approaches Jesus and ask, is asking him, what do I need to do to have eternal life? I need, I believe in you as a great teacher. Help show me the way. So what is he indicating? That he believes that what God, what he, he believes that what God has made important is important to him. But when Jesus tells him to go and sell all his possessions and give to the poor, the man walks away. And the interaction between Jesus and the young man is pointing to a deeper context that we find culturally during this time. You see, in Jewish tradition, possessions and wealth were often considered as indications of divine favor and blessing from God. 
the prevailing belief was that material prosperity signified God's approval and was a mark of your righteousness and faithfulness, which meant Jesus wasn't asking him to give up his security and safety. Jesus didn't care about what he had. That's not what he needed. Jesus was after his heart. You see, Jesus was looking him in the eye and saying, I want you to trade what you have built your identity on, where you have misplaced your faith, and start again by building a life on me. That's what Jesus was asking. Not, you did well with religion. Do you have relationship with God the Father? I want you to relinquish relinquish what you feel is a fundamental aspect of your identity and and your standing within the community. Jesus was not asking for his material possessions. Jesus was challenging the very core of this young man's identity and societal status. And Jesus with this is highlighting the importance of prioritizing kingdom vision and values over worldly vision and values, challenging us to shift our perspective from this earthly temporal world to an eternal spiritual identity rooted in faith and obedience to God, not to laws and religion, but with relationship. Amen. And I wish that I could say that this story is far off from our own, but it's not. As Christians, we often pursue societal success in an attempt to to have self-worth and build material prosperity, financial achievements to acquire more. And I don't know if you realize this, but material possessions tend to anchor our hearts to this world. We end up acquiring so much, we end up having such a large stake in the world, amassing such great interest in it that it's difficult for us to think beyond it and then contemplate leaving it. Even though in the back of our mind, we know it's such a silly thing, we're still thinking, how do I hold on and keep what I have? And what's so hard about living in a material world is that we look at everything through the lens of a price and lose how to see things with value. We think in terms of money and forget that there are things of value beyond what money can measure or buy. And, and there's, there's just, there's a side note to this, that Jesus is saying in life, you will not only be responsible for the possessions that you acquire, but how you use the possessions that you acquire. And the rich young ruler, while reminding us that material wealth may provide temporary security and comfort, goes beyond that because these things shouldn't serve as the foundation of our identity or a source of ultimate fulfillment. Jesus is calling us to prioritize the kingdom of God. And when he does, it will challenge our heart where it hurts the most and reveal to us where we have placed our hope. God doesn't do this because he's cruel, but because God wants to know, will you trust him even when it doesn't make sense to trust him? Will you have faith in him even when everything and everyone else says otherwise? And listen, This isn't trust for a day. This is trust over a lifetime. And I think that we miss this. I think even in the Garden of Eden, Adam didn't tell Adam and Eve, God didn't tell Adam and Eve to avoid the fruit for a few days, a few months, a few weeks. He just said avoid it. There was no real context other than eat it and die. That's pretty clear. 
And as far as I can tell, God intended for them to, to avoid it for all of eternity. There was no timeline on that. And for too many of us, believing in the love of God is easy, but following the command of God is hard. The love of God is free, but it will cost you your life. Following Jesus involves surrendering all of our life to him, not just what we're comfortable with, not just what's convenient. He wants what is costly because he paid a great price for us with his life on the cross. And the rich young ruler believed in God, followed religious practices, and still his identity relied on his material wealth and possessions. He acknowledges Jesus. He's seeking his guidance, and yet he still struggles to fully embrace his teachings and make him the primary object of his faith. His attachment to his material possessions, his attachments of identity, prevented him from fully surrendering to Jesus and putting him above all else in his life. What are you holding on to that you think is your right? What are you holding on to that you think is truly you that Jesus is saying, I, ne I need you to just let go of? Genuine faith in Jesus involves surrendering all aspects of our lives to him, including our material possessions and personal ambitions. And when we make Jesus the central focus of our faith by entrusting our lives to his ways, his teachings, his word, acknowledging his authority over all aspects of our heart, mind, and soul, he can begin to journey with us somewhere. We need to know what is the object of my faith. What is the object of your faith? And from a biblical definition, like, let me just spell it out. Faith is the firm belief and trust in God his teachings, and his promises based on spiritual convictions and the authority of Scripture, God's word that has been given to us. This is, what, this is how we can begin to encompass a deep and unwavering faith and confidence in Jesus by believing in his divinity as the Son of God, by having a reliance on his grace, by allowing his guidance and providence to be full in our life, Christian faith involves a personal relationship with God through Jesus and the obedience to his teachings, believing that there is redemptive work that, be, that can begin to take place when I take him at his word, that the things that are within me can begin to be changed. That when I believe what he says, when I put to work his word, that I can begin to become a new person from the inside out. It's undertaking a spiritual journey by commitment to practices and the cultivation of virtues like faith, hope, and love based on the teachings of Jesus. And I've been real bothered lately by messages that I've been seeing and hearing within culture. And, and I want to clarify something. And I know, and for a minute, you're going to hear this, you might push back, but walk, just walk with me for a second. True love always puts conditions on us. True love always puts conditions on us. Too many people and too many messages leverage the truth of God's love as a lie. Love shouldn't be leveraged to live however you pleased. God's unconditional love for us 
does not mean that his love isn't conditional. Hear me. God's unconditional love for us does not mean that his love isn't conditional. Healthy love is always conditional. And this is why the Genesis story is so important for us. God asking Adam and Eve to not eat of a specific tree had nothing to do about holding them back. It had everything to do with building and maintaining right relationship. God asked them to do something not because it was practical, not because it was exciting, not because it was relevant, not because there was some benefit for them, not because it was helpful, but simply because he said so. I want you to do something, not for your sake, but for my sake. That's what he was asking of them. Why? Because relationships are built on trust. It is a two-way street And relationships are meant to share in the weight of accountability with one another. And Adam and Eve had an obligation to God, and God made an obligation to them. God wanted to live in relationship with them, not lord over them. He wanted to love them and be loved by them, not leverage his power against them. Faith requires trust. Love requires conditions, and it has to be freely given and received. And God's ask of us to live in a way that is different than the world around us is not a cruelty, it's a covenant. And covenants are not convenient. Like, I've been married for 12 years. Yes, I know. Like, child child groom, child bride, I get it. (laughs) Being committed to my wife has not always been easy. The married people in the house know what's up. Being married has been work, costly work. And there were times, if I was honest, where it felt like cruelty to me. Like what was being asked or required of me was cruelty, only for me to find out that there were parts of my character that needed to be cut out or crafted because it wasn't God's best for me. And it didn't mean that my wife didn't have problems. She has problems. (laughs) She's not here, so I can say that. (laughs) The problem was I had things in my life that God needed to to change and challenge and needed me to conform to. And so even when marriage gets hard, when life gets tough, my response is to hold fast to God and his word and to take him at his word, to cling to Jesus, the one in whom I place my faith, who is after my heart, to heal my hangups and to transform my habits, but it takes work and requires us to hold on to hope even when we experience doubt. Because I can tell you, if you've been in marriage and committed to it, there were times when you weren't sure if it was all going to work out. There were times when you weren't sure if there was enough love there to hold it together. But love isn't a feeling, it's a choice. And covenant is not convenient. It's about learning to be committed. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings 
because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul's not talking about some hope that's kind of wish upon a star or cross your fingers and pray for chance. He's talking about a kind of hope that has already been written and can be taken to the bank. The object of your faith is going to inform your hope. This is why knowing the object of your faith is so important. The object of your faith informs the hope that you have, the hope that you will see within your life. Faith is, tr is a trusting relationship with the person, Jesus, and faith in Jesus will change your life. By placing our faith, a faith that is informed in Jesus, we are able to embrace the hope of the glory of God. A hope that is not fleeting or uncertain, but there is confident anticipation that God will fulfill his promises to you in your life. If he said he'll do it, it's done. And because of that, because God has been faithful, because God made it right, even for the people who got it wrong, we can remember that troubles, that the pressures of life produce a fortitude of our spirit. This isn't simply enduring. This is overcoming. This is the language that Paul's using here, and it's so important for us to understand. Because it means that to overcome, there's a catch. You can't passively endure. You have to actively participate within your own sufferings. James 2.26, as the body without the spirit is dead... So faith without deeds is dead. Just as the body is lifeless without the spirit, faith is lifeless without actions. Faith is not merely some abstract belief, but should take tangible steps characterized by obedience to God's word. And, and, and let's just get practical, right? Any test you've ever taken required you to prepare for it before enduring it. Why is it that we think faith works any differently? For some reason, we've got this assumption that faith is just supposed to kick in automatically just because I said that I believed. And I think this is why doubt is such a struggle for so many of us and, and more than it should be. Because if we were honest, our walk of faith is super shallow or misplaced. Like for many of us, it consists of coming to church on Sunday, maybe showing up you know, every once in a while on Wednesday, and then copy, paste, and repeat, copy, paste, and repeat. Monday through Saturday, we're not putting God's word in front of us, which means God's word can't go to work within us, which means how can he encourage us or challenge us or change us and prepare, for, prepare us for what he's prepared and planned for us? And instead of living in God's will, we begin to live out our own way. And then is it any wonder why we have doubt when we encounter something we don't know what to do with? What he actually has already given us answers for, we're just not looking for them. We want to self-sustain rather than recognize he is the one who is intended to sustain us. He's the one faith is supposed to be built on. He's the object we should be pursuing after. And what, what's so encouraging is that when I read God's word, 
Have you noticed it's not about a bunch of people who get things right? There are serious failures and flaws in the people that God chose to follow him. It's not about perfection. God just needs you to take a step of progress. And and when I think about the rich young ruler, I think that he was hoping that Jesus would tell him that his life of religious rules, religious faith was enough to save him. His hope was misplaced because his faith was misplaced, which is why when Jesus challenged him, he didn't know what to do with it. But Jesus loved him. And because Jesus loved him, Jesus tested him. Jesus challenged him and tried to get his attention where it would hurt the most. Jesus in this moment was testing him. And this is what Paul is trying to get at in Romans, that you will glory in suffering if your faith is on the foundation of Jesus because you've placed your hope in a person that you can trust and not a thing that will erode away. And this is why I think pain is such a powerful tool of transformation because pain gets our attention when nothing else does, doesn't it? There is no way, when you're in pain, you can't ignore it. You can't just sidestep it. It causes you to be intentional. You can't just live passively. It requires something of us, and most often we realize we don't have what we need to deal with it. And Jesus is saying, I'm what you need to deal with the problems, the issues, the circumstances, the hopelessness, the despair, the brokenness that you face. And the good news is that our pain is never permanent. It has an expiration date. Proverbs 13, 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Now, Pastor Dose and I were talking this week about this verse, and he said something that I, I couldn't ignore. He said, when I read this verse, I believe that when hope has been deferred, God is actually trying to replace it with a different longing. And it hit me. Longings have to be quenched by encountering the right source, which means that hope is only fulfilled when we've placed our faith in the right object. You see how this keeps coming full circle. And and maybe you're here today and you're exploring faith and you realize that something is missing. What you've done, what you've seen isn't working and you need another way. I would just say if you would be willing to give Jesus a chance, if you would be willing to take him at his word and follow him, you don't have to understand how it all works out and comes together. There are some parts of God that are just a mystery to all of us, always, because he's bigger and greater than I will ever be or could possibly comprehend. But if you would be willing to take a chance, to risk a step of faith, I think that he could change your life completely from the inside out. He might not change the world around you, but he will change how you view and see and experience the world within you. And maybe you're in this space and you follow Jesus. But the truth is Jesus hasn't been the object of your faith. You've lived life on your terms. Jesus is Lord in your life, not Lord of your life. Because you haven't kept him at the center. You've done good things. You've been a good person. But you have not built your faith or your life on Jesus. You need to know this relationship with Jesus 
is not about what you do, it's how well you follow him. And following someone means that we lay down our preference, our choice, our desires for theirs. We build our life around what they say. Build your life on Jesus and do what he says, not just for a day, not for a week, not for a month, over your lifetime. And then you will be able to look back and see and measure his faithfulness to you. And whether you believe or don't believe, it's okay to doubt. Doubt is not a dilemma for faith. It's an invitation to continue to follow, to continue to just say, I'd be willing to take you at your word. Would you be willing to put Jesus first and take him at his word? I want to pray over us. Heavenly Father, God, you see each and every person, God, in this place today. And God, the journey of faith, God, it's hard. And the truth is, everyone in this room, God, we've placed our faith in something or someone. It's, it's not just, a, it's not a religious thing, it's a human thing. We put faith in something. But God, there is, there is a cohesiveness and a clarity to your word if we're really willing to read it and understand it. It opens up our world in a way that makes our chaos and confusion make sense and gives reason and points, God, to a picture that, can, that we know we we're trying to reach, God, but never can reach. And the problem is that without you, God, our world will never be fulfilled, and that's the point of the Bible. It's the story that tells us that without you, there is always a brokenness, a pain, a hurting that will never be fulfilled, that will never be quenched, that can never, a wholeness that will never be experienced unless we are willing to trust in Jesus and not just say it, live it. And so, God, I pray God, your presence, God, has been in this room since we worship. You have been working on our hearts, our minds, our souls. God, I pray that you would challenge us, God, where it hurts the most. That you would challenge, God, the things that sit on the throne of our heart, the things that we're holding so close to, so tightly as our identity. And that we would be willing, God, in this moment to just let our hands loose and say, okay, Jesus, I am willing to trust and turn to you. You be Lord, not just in my life, but of my life, and lead me moment by moment, day by day, breath by breath, and I will trust that when my life is done and I've breathed my last breath, that every promise that you have made will come true and will have been experienced in my life because your word, God, is good and can be trusted and never fails. You're holy, you're worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If this ministry has impacted you in any way and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, please visit lifepointsa.com slash give to make a donation. We hope you have a great rest of your week and we hope to see you soon at one of our Sunday worship experiences. God bless.